You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. I want to remind you that we are a movement of diverse people living out God's sacrificial love, which includes taking care of people during this time of COVID. And so we will sacrifice for others. And I've enjoyed watching some of our younger people through COVID, and especially when we were locked down, watch them uh, help us continue to have services. And, uh, you know, Dave and Ruth and some other folks for years have made sure that services happened for, for the young people. And now the young people have helped make sure that the services uh, have helped uh, those who are most vulnerable during this time. So I think that's fantastic. Our mission is raising biblical disciples who develop transparent relationships, sacrifice for others and heal divisions. And, and I just want to make sure that this is always out in front of us, that we remember who we are, what we're about as a church. And that's really what this sermon series is about as we talk about changing our world, what does that look like? And I believe that the church is God's answer to the world for change. And we're looking through the lens of these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, originally that was one document, there's one book with one intent, one purpose for that book. And so we're diving in and really trying to figure out what God wants to communicate to us through this story. And we've come up with a number of blueprints so far. We're four weeks in, and the first three blueprints read this way. Number one, changing a world takes work, and you are the worker. In other words, we all have a part to play, and we have to figure out what that part is. To some degree, we're supposed to live out our design. God has made us unique. And so when we live out that design and do our part, Together, we put God on display in, in magnificent ways. Number two, uh, avoiding messy, messy people does not usher in God's presence. God shows up when we engage the mess, invite him into it. And so when uh, people show up and they have messy theology, we're not going to send them away. When people show up and they don't have anything about God figured out, we're going to engage with them because they're valuable to him. And that's when God wants to show up in, in those messes. Number three, when people fail, when our people fail, when we fail, we will partner in rest, restoration. That's the role of the church. Sometimes the church has known for eating its own wounded. Have you, have you heard that phrase before? for attacking its own wounded. We can't be that kind of a church. When someone fails within our midst, we have to do what we can to bring restoration. Well, so far we've seen a a repeated pattern through the first and second half of Ezra. And we'll see that repeated pattern happen again in the first half of Nehemiah. A king sends out a people Really, he sends out a leader and some people follow that leader. And then that leader faces some opposition 
And there's a strange anticlimax. There's something about the story that feels unresolved. And, that's, and there's a larger chiasm that covers the whole story, Ezra and Nehemiah, number of other patterns that emerge that really tells us that this was originally one book. Well, we're going to jump into Nehemiah chapters one through seven. We will highlight chapters one, two, and five. Uh, we'll kind of skip all the surface of what takes place between chapters, uh, second half of chapter two and the rest of uh, through six. And then chapter seven is a list uh, similar to what we see in Ezra chapter two. And these lists act as a bookend to this chiasm. But let's jump into Nehemiah chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some of the men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Wow. When was the last time you sat down and you wept and you mourned for days? It's only happened a few, few times in my own life. I want to remind you of where we're at in the history uh, within this story. So in 538 BC, uh, Zerubbabel leads some people back to Jerusalem and the process of rebuilding the temple starts. And it's not completed until 516. And then Ezra is sent to Jerusalem in 458. And now Nehemiah enters the story in 444. More than 70 years has gone by. More than 70 years has gone by. And we're told that the people are under great distress. This doesn't sound like the first exodus, does it? The first exodus that was so victorious. The walls and gates have torn down and have been torn down. The, and so the two exodus that we see in Ezra, the first half of Ezra and the second half of Ezra, and they have kind of a repetition. There's elements of those stories that remind you of the exodus out of Egypt. And yet this story doesn't seem to have the fairy tale ending of people entering a promised land and thriving. In fact, in Ezra 4.23, we see these words. Then as soon as the copy of the king Artaxerxes' documents read before Ram and Shimshai, the scribe, and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. And so when the temple work was interrupted, some people went to Jerusalem and they attacked. And this is probably... The, when the walls and the gates were destroyed. 
after the people have been in the land for some time. In Nehemiah, he responds through prayer. And so in Nehemiah 1, we see 5 through 11, we see these words. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. My friends, this is a prayer of faith. This guy sees what he what is true, even though the things they sees in front of them are hard and challenging. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. If you want to know how to confess before God, I give you Nehemiah as an example. Like this, he is serious about his prayer. This is not the 32nd, I guess you caught me, God, kind of prayer. This is, I have sinned. We have sinned. I have broken your commands. And this is in reference to the scriptures. He go out, he'll go on to say, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant, Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the peoples. Well, they know that this is true, right? He's praying from Babylon. He knows that this part of the scriptures, this part of the promise is true. And so he concludes this, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy inside of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. I love this prayer. I love this prayer. He assumes that when God said, I will scatter you, when you're not faithful and God did that, that when people choose to be faithful and Nehemiah is choosing to be faithful, that God will be true to his promises and bring people back, bring his people back. This is a prayer of faith. This is a prayer that regardless of what I see in my world, Regardless of the chaos, I still trust that you are God and you have something to say about this right here, right now. And he prays this for four months. So he first gets the news in the month of Kislev and he prays for four months into the month of Nisan. And then we see these words in Nehemiah 2. And it came about in the month of Nisan, 
then the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. In other words, he always painted on a smile on his face. Kind of like what I'm going to do for my mask next week. I'm going to paint on a smile. So you guys know I'm smiling at you all the time. Um, the king said to me, why is your face sad though? You're not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Nehemiah has been asking God to move boldly and God is going to ask Nehemiah to move boldly and to speak boldly before the king so that the kingdom can move forward. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Love this. This is actually my other favorite Nehemiah prayer. Like we see two Nehemiah prayers. One's a four month long conversation that looks at the scriptures, that digs into the scriptures, that says, oh, this is true of me. And I don't want it to be true anymore. And I want you to change me. And so there's that four month conversation, but then there's this, oh, sweet Jesus prayer. <laughs> and maybe that's all he prays. That's maybe all he gets out before he talks to the king. So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it pleased the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tomb, that I may rebuild it. Wow. This is a man of faith. This is a man that dives into his scriptures. This is a man that wrestles over the scriptures. This is a man that recognizes where his people have fallen short, where he has personally fallen short. And he confesses that to God. He trusts God to be able to move in everyday circumstances in the midst of the chaos. He trusts God to be able to do all that. Now, I don't know. I mean, we've all probably had some walls that we need to fix or work on or restore. Uh, Logan recently had a wall that he had to fix. Um, Logan used a stud finder to hang a dartboard and he found studs and a drain pipe. And uh, I don't know how, six months, a year, how long was that? A year, dartboard was up for a year. Uh, hanging, um, well, the pipe was holding the, was holding his dartboard up, not, not the studs. <laughs> and pretty soon he found a little bit of mold and he found a little bit more mold and he found a little bit more mold and eventually found a lot of mold. <laughs> And uh, he didn't know if his whole house was falling apart. No, nope. he'd just been playing darts too long. Uh, so there's a new home for the dartboard. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes there's something in our life that's just kind of crumbling, falling apart, and we need to address it. And, you know, you've been working on this, what, six months? So, you know, pre-COVID, not... 
like not a ton of zeal in the repairing of this wall. There's other walls that have been torn down that we've been maybe a little bit more zealous about that, that strikes at the heart of, of a nation when we see, see those pictures. You know, but this is not just national zeal for, for Nehemiah. Nehemiah. This is God's reputation. This is God's holy reputation. The people have not lived out their relationship before God well. And they've been back in the land for over 70 years. And the people are in distress and the walls are torn down. When you serve a powerful God, but he looks powerless This is a crushing bowl, blow for Nehemiah. What, what are you zealous about? What stirs you to pray for four months? What stirs you to dive into the scriptures and wrestle over things that you need to change? For me, what I'm zealous about is discipleship. I didn't know what I didn't know until I knew that I didn't know. <laughs> like I was sitting in a service like this and the pastor was talking about this discipleship and I'd been a churchgoer. I'd gone to Bible school and I found some of the most freeing words ever when I found out that Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And when I realized that that invitation was for me as well, that I could follow Jesus, like it's kind of like an Exodus that I could be changed by Jesus, that he would on, on an active basis, on a daily basis, be changing me, making me into a new person and that I could actually be on mission with Jesus and that could define my life. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Is your love for God growing? Are you actively growing in your ability to love God in new and better ways? Or has it become stagnant? He said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is connecting these two commands. He's saying they're like each other. Like these are complementary commands. They work together. You can't separate them. And so do you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Is that growing? Are you getting better at that or have you become stagnant and do you love your neighbor as yourself and not the nice neighbor that brings you cookies like that's 
That's easy to love that person. When Lori brings me cookies or Jennifer, wherever she may be, when she, easy love people that bring me cookies. I'm talking about the neighbor that posts things on Facebook that gets under your skin. Talking about the neighbor that's hard to love, that challenges you. Or it could be your son or your daughter that day, that moment. Could be your uncle, your aunt, your friend. We should be growing in our ability to love God and love people always as we follow Christ. If, we're, if we serve a powerful God, this should be changing in us all the time. And this is why I'm zealous about relational discipleship. It's an active response to the things that God's calling us to. So it's coming together as community and figuring this out together. It's me seeing you do some things in really redemptive ways as you, as, as you love on your neighbor in a way that I never considered. I'm like, oh, one, they're really gifted at that. And two, I think I could do that too. I've known some people that just have a heart for serving people that's super redemptive. and I've learned new ways of, of serving folks. Or says, come together and figure out how to worship God together. And I see you worship God in a way that, that is super redemptive. And I'm going, man, I love the way they worship the Lord. I want to be like that. I should celebrate God like that. We're inviting uh, Marty Solomon to speak and uh, he's going to, record some videos, but Marty is a guy that I've gone to over the years say, Hey, help me understand this when it comes to my own personal walk with Christ. And, and he's going to help us with the Sabbath conversation. We're going to spend five weeks in August talking about Sabbath and Marty's wrestled with this issue longer than I have. And so getting some discipleship through my friend, an active response to Jesus called to follow him, to be changed by him and be on mission with him. Well, like I said uh, earlier, uh, the first and second half of Ezra was this, these two different Exodus narratives. And last week I said, Hey, I wonder what Nehemiah's going to hold for us. Is that going to be another Exodus narrative? I've got some bad news for you. It is not. It's a Joshua narrative, which comes right after the Exodus, so it's okay. Joshua becomes the new Moses at the beginning of the Joshua story, which in itself is an Exodus narrative, if you think about it. And we'll talk about that on our footnotes podcast. But from Nehemiah 2.10 to 6.19, seven times we're going to see Nehemiah opposed. And we're going to see what a godly leader does with that opposition. And so the first time Nehemiah is opposed, he inspects the walls and he makes plans. The second time he's opposed, he organizes teams. He casts vision. 
He starts the work. The third time he's opposed, he prays for vindication. The fourth time he prays for protection. And the fifth time Nehemiah is opposed, the fifth obstacle that he's placed in front of him, he responds to the present circumstances. He changes his plans. He adjusts his plans. Kind of like we had to, as a church, probably, probably like every family had to do during COVID, we had to adjust our plans, right? We adjusted the way we, we work, just the way we go shopping. You know, as a church, we made a lot of adjustments. Like we sat down one Monday when we knew that live services were not going to happen for a while. And we, we came up with all these plans, all these things that we we're going to do to continue to be a relational discipleship church. And we responded to present day circumstances. And so we started live streaming services. We provided uh, Zoom links for people to do care group via Zoom. Started using Marco Polo so we could keep seeing each other's faces when we're not in each other's care group. We uh, went old school and we actually called people. It was crazy. They answered and we talked. It was amazing. We sent some texts too. We've added life transforming groups which are relational discipleship environments. We've added more church members. This is how we've responded. Like Nehemiah, regardless of the obstacle, keep responding. Keep focused on the mission. The sixth time Nehemiah is opposed, he responds with humility and with integrity. And the last time he's opposed, he just finishes the work. He just completes the wall. He's got a laser focus and he appoints officials to help share in the load of work. Nehemiah never lost sight of the mission. He never lost sight. Seven times he was opposed, seven times he had obstacles, seven times he stayed on task. It seems like the, like the masks, right? That's the new... That's a new struggle. I mean, our attendance has dropped in half since the requirement has come down from the county and then reinforced by the governor. And we'll just have to figure out how to respond to this as a community of believers. But not all obstacles are external. Nehemiah 5 is is a strange interlude in the middle of the story. It's kind of in a strange spot. It doesn't seem to make sense with the rest. The rest of the story falls kind of a pattern. It's a break from the pattern. I think it sits here, right here, because you go, why is this placed here? And so let's take a look. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let's get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There are also those in the, who said, we are mor- mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So two things going on right away, right? 
there's, there's a famine in the land and they're mortgaging everything off so that they could eat. They're just trying to survive. And then the king, the king has his tax. He wants his fair share or maybe more than his fair share. And the people are suffering and they're selling off their stuff to their neighbors so that they could survive. Now our flesh is as of the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in the power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting, exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers. We who who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brother that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could, could not find a word to say. Again, I said, this thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations and our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers, my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Now, when Nehemiah says that he, he's lending them grain, he's lending them for free. Like, it's a gift. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you're exacting from them. As brave as Nehemiah had to be with a pagan king, he had to be even braver, braver with his own people to say, guys, we cannot act like the nations. We cannot act like Pharaoh that when there's a famine in the land, we, we become rich off of that. And we enslave every one of our brothers in the midst of that. We cannot we cannot be like Egypt. We cannot be like the pagans. Do you not fear God? Nehemiah was not willing to build the wall at the expense of the people. The mission includes the people. We, we take the people along with us on the journey. And we all need to th thrive in the midst of this. Sometimes our greatest obstacle to advancing God's kingdom comes from within. It's the, it's the fights that we have within the church. And I'm really grateful that we've had up to this point. You guys have been so faithful. I don't see gossip taking place in our church. I don't see people arguing over shades of carpet. I don't see people arguing over non-salvation issues. 
there's some relationships that need to be restored. We need to work on that. There's something that I think about often. But by and large, we're taking care of each other in the midst of this. We need to be relationally aligned. This, this means that we, that we love each other, that we give each other preference, that we resolve conflict, that we make amends when we've done something that we shouldn't have, when we've said something that we shouldn't have. And we need to be willing to love anyone who comes through the door regardless of how much they've got figured out, what their past was like, what their history says. Nehemiah led the people when it came to the rebuilding of the wall, but also caring for the people that are carrying on the work. Nehemiah cared about God's reputation, God's glory. And you can tell by the way he cared for the people because you can't separate those two. I think we see maybe a little different response in this story than we saw in the first and second story in this series. It's a little different response where Nehemiah says, no, these, the people are important too. They are our people there. And the way we care for them tells the world what kind of God that we have. And so the blueprint is this, regardless of the obstacle we encounter as a church, we will not be distracted from following Jesus being changed by Jesus and being on mission with Jesus. One of the least favorite things that I do every week now is throw on this mask for hours on end. This could be a distraction. You can't see it in my face, (laughs) but it's there. Actually, I could see it in some of your eyes, just the weariness of, of this. And this is just another step in a long journey since what, March, February? Started hitting the news in January, but didn't really hit here close to home until I think it was March. It's going to take courage and stamina to keep moving forward. And so we'll have to figure out what the most important steps are. But when it comes to following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and being on mission with Jesus, I'm absolutely committed to that. And I'm absolutely committed to wearing a mask so we can continue to have this conversation and keep pressing into this. And we'll stream services, we'll use Zoom, 
We'll take advantage of technology. We'll become creative at finding solutions. We'll find a bigger space. That's, uh, that's my Nehemiah prayer right now is larger space. Both the four month long and the little one. I've been praying both of those. That's our blueprint, folks. We will not be distracted from following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and being on mission with Jesus. And the first call to action is, if you have not done so, respond to Christ's invitation. And know that the invitation looks more like an exodus than a prayer that says, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. It looks more like an exodus because Jesus wants to lead you on a path of redemption. He wants to lead you into a deeper relationship. He wants to change you forevermore. And he wants you to join him in the work that he's doing. And so is the, is the sinner's prayer part of the process? Absolutely. Is that the end game? No. It's not. We need to respond to the call that he's made on us. And you could just ask yourself, have I, do I see myself following Jesus? Can I tell that Jesus is out in front? Can anybody else tell that Jesus is out in front of my life? Do I even know what that looks like? And if you don't, that's okay. Like, I get that. No, one's, no one knows that intrinsically. That's what community is about. That's why we have life transforming groups and care groups so that we can disciple people to journey with you, to figure this out together. And then once you've responded to that invitation, we need to extend that invitation to others. And again, if, if we think that all we're trying to do is get someone to pray something or show up to some event, like that's a good step, but that's not where it ends until they know the Jesus that is calling them to follow him, to be changed by him, to be on mission with him. This is how we continue to follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus and be on mission with Jesus, regardless of the obstacles. And we need to invest in discipleship. And when I say invest, Jesus says that discipleship comes with a cost. It'll cost you probably monetarily. It'll cost you time, but the return is amazing. The return is amazing. Where are you at spiritually? How well are you loving God and how well are you loving your neighbor? Has that changed over time or has it become stagnant? And so if you have not been discipled, that's where we jump into a life transforming group. That's where we jump into a care group where that process can start. And sometimes we need to just go to someone and say, Hey, I need some one-on-one time too. 
But those of us who have been discipled, those of us who have grown spiritually, that have grown in our ability to love people and love God, we need to disciple people that will disciple people that will disciple people because you and I would not be here today if it wasn't for those who did that for thousands of years. That makes this time possible. The faithful generations of disciples that discipled others to disciple others to disciple others. Regardless of the obstacles we encounter, we will not be distracted from following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and being on mission with Jesus. And then we also need to be serving people. This is the mission. This is what it means to be on mission is through serving. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Serving is the mission. Meeting the needs of people is the mission. It's how we tell the world what kind of God we have. And then lastly, protect God's reputation and God's most prized possession. God's reputation and the care of his most prized possession, which is people are intricately tied together. You can't separate them. Remember a couple weeks ago when they found that some had, uh, they had married foreign women and they were going to send the women and the children away. That might've been last week. I've lost track. They were, they were living for God's reputation, but they forgot that it was connected to God's most prized possession, which is people. And you can't separate those. They're always connected. The way we care for people, the way we love people, the way we forgive, the way we resolve conflict, the way we carry each other's burdens matters. Nehemiah was unwilling to build the wall, which was for God's glory at the expense of the people, which was also for God's glory. And he was courageous enough to ask the king, will you send me? And he was courageous enough to talk to the rulers and say, give it all back. Everything that they have paid for food, return it to them. It's a big ask. And they all responded faithfully. Such a cool story. Regardless of the obstacle we encounter, we will not be distracted from following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and being on mission with Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana, 
if you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side. Take my mask off to do this. Logan will talk to me about a mute button later. <laughs> <laughs>